ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When things are going wrong in our lives, there are certain platitudes that people tend to say which are perhaps meant to be helpful, but often aren't. You always have those people who say, oh, it could always be worse. Uh, great. You know, everything happens for a reason. That one's a personal pet peeve. Oh, okay, but what can we be learning from this? A helpful reframe later down the track, but not as a first response. Oh, it's all in your attitude. You just, you have to have hope. You have to be a fighter. Ooh, that last one, if you've had an illness or cared for someone who has, you know that sentiment can be especially awful. But these statements aren't just irritating. They can really chip away at our sense of what is an acceptable way to feel. If so many people are reflecting back to you these kinds of statements, you just learn it's not safe to express those feelings. It's not okay to talk about how you're feeling sad. And they're telling me that if I'm just positive enough, that cancer won't kill me? Really? You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely pathetic. There's a term for these kinds of comments and the attitudes they push. It's toxic positivity. You know, it's about the idea to, to be positive all the time, to maintain positive thoughts, a, a certain level of positive emotionality. And really, in, in some ways, it's not so much about that desire to be happy or even for other people to want us to be happy. That's actually quite a good thing. It's when it becomes at that level where failing to achieve that at some point, and, and inevitably we all, we all do, feels like we're failing to achieve some sort of important social standard. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, we're reaching into our archives for an episode we first played in February 2022 on toxic positivity, why we engage in it, why it's so damaging when we do, and whether something called tragic optimism can be the antidote we need. So I met my now ex-housemate a couple years ago, and she's a yoga teacher. And so that was how we first sort of started our friendship, was her teaching me yoga. This is someone we're calling Anna. She's 27 and lives in Sydney. And about a year ago, she moved in with this yogi friend of hers. I was really excited about it. I was really excited about living with someone who valued mental health Mm -hmm. and was trying to improve themselves. But Anna says over the course of a year, her friend's focus on self-improvement and positive thinking had an insidious effect. I think it sort of starts as it looks like she's trying to take care of you. But then when pretty much every time I left my room and I wasn't smiling or, you know, acting peppy, she would ask me, oh, like, what's wrong? Like, are you okay? And treat me like I needed help, which it seems nice at first, but when it happens so often, you start to think like, oh, is there something wrong with me because I'm not smiling all the time? Hmm. What other kinds of things would she say? Pretty much everything that was mentioned as like a bad or a negative thing, she would spin it as like, oh, okay, but what can we be learning from this? Which again, nice to start off with, but sometimes things are just bad. You know, you just want someone to be like, oh yeah, like that sucks. And just other things like I, I jokingly said, oh, curse you universe. And she like, chastised me. It was like, oh, no, no, we can't. The universe might might overhear and we don't want to bring like bad luck. And then was like thanking the universe for all the things that we do have. But I just lost my job and like really just 
wanted to acknowledge that a bad thing had happened mm. to me. Yeah, and that was just quite invalidating. By the end of the year, Anna's mental health had taken a dive. I think that I'm generally a pretty well-adjusted person, you know, like it's been a year with some pretty major struggles for me, just like work-wise with the pandemic and stuff. But I'd like generally thought of myself as handling things okay. But at the end of 2021, I genuinely thought there must be something just so wrong with me if I'm like not able to wake up smiling. That's the toxic part of it. That idea, that standard of being happy all the time has been perhaps sold to us or promoted in a way which just makes us feel like if we're not feeling happy, there's a problem. This is Professor Brock Bastian. I'm a social psychologist at the University of Melbourne. He says toxic positivity is kind of all around us, not just in some of our relationships. As a social psychologist, I do look at it more in terms of those informational sources in the culture, in our social environment that we're exposed to, which might relay this kind of message. I think one, actually, which we often don't think about very much is advertising. If you look around you at the various advertisers, simply want to put happy faces with the products that they want to sell. But again, there's a lot of that around, and it does mean we're exposed to a lot of happy, smiling faces, and that can lead us to feel like we should be, you know, like that ourselves. What's wrong with us if we're not feeling the same as these people that we see happy, smiling, consuming uh, around us constantly? So I think that's one avenue. I think uh, social media is also an avenue through which this occurs too, because we very rarely post images of ourselves feeling sad or blue or anxious or after an experience of failure, it's normally that successful, happy, positive, winning kind of impression we, we want to portray. And of course, that means it sets up that expectation that these other people must be feeling like this all the time. I think there's, there's so much like mental health discourse going on on social media at the moment. And yeah, so much of it is about actually you can just manifest the things you want into reality. And if you're not doing that, then you're obviously not focusing on the positives enough. And it's like, just ignores the fact that there's so much that's out of your control. Can you tell me more specifically what you've seen on social media that falls into the toxic positivity basket? Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I sent a video to my boyfriend the other day that we we laughed about of someone saying that you can actually just manifest yourself a million dollars. <laughs> it was like, great news, babe. It turns out if I think about it hard enough, I can just jump into a different reality where you, you've manifested yourself a million dollars. And that was news to me. And on the flip side, if you're, you know, not thinking correctly, you're to blame for not having a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just too toxic. The thing is, a lot of the thinking that leads to toxic positivity is grounded in some kernel of truth. We know thinking positively can be beneficial in many ways. You know, it can help us live longer, be healthier, etc. So what about all of this is toxic? How does this veer into toxic territory when positive thinking is beneficial in many ways? Yeah, exactly. So look, it's good to be able to find happiness in life. It's good to reframe situations if we're viewing them unnecessarily negatively to reframe them in a way which allows us to respond or to manage them better. But ultimately, it's this idea that we should always be in that state of mind or that we always need to be having those sorts of experiences and we don't allow room for the alternative. The fact is we we can't always be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, the, the good life involves some negative emotion. And I think broadly, when we make happiness a goal in itself, that's when it backfires. 
trying to pursue it indirectly through other things, perhaps things which are meaningful, connecting with purpose, connecting with people, doing things which would be valuable even if we weren't feeling great about them on that day or, or even if they didn't lead to our own happiness, they would still be important things to do. That's when we tend to find that happiness does follow up from behind and that's a better way to pursue it. Uh, when we set it out and say, well, my goal in life is to be as happy as I can, I mean, even that just sounds a little bit hollow, right? <laughs> and, and I think that that's, that's where we get unstuck. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about your research in this area? Because to say we shouldn't make happiness a goal feels so counterintuitive. That feels wrong almost. Why does making happiness a goal not work? What has your research found? Let me start with other people's research first. What we do know is that, again, when people set up happiness is a goal. It's an internal emotional state. So when we, when, we, when we have a goal in life, say it's to buy a car, and we move towards that goal, we're saving up. But along the way, we will assess, how am I going? And obviously, along the way, we'll be assessing that at some point where we haven't yet achieved it. And of course, there's some disappointment there or you know, some wishing that we were closer towards that goal. Now, if that's a car, we just need to put that, that disappointment back into our efforts to earn more money that works just fine because it's external. Mm -hmm. Whereas when happiness is the goal and I'm assessing, well, how am I going along my journey of trying to be happier? And I realize along the way that I'm not as happy as I'd like to be, that sense of uh, dissatisfaction with how I'm feeling or where I am in terms of my achievement of that goal actually adds to my inability to achieve it. It pushes me further away from it. It has this ironic effect. And so certainly other research has suggested that when people most expect to be happy, it's when they least are least likely to feel happy because our expectations mm. go up high and our reality doesn't always meet those and the space in between is often filled with disappointment. So we have our internal worlds are somewhat ironic and, mm -hmm. and trying to pursue them directly in that way just doesn't work. It, yeah. It's the same as with our thinking. We know that trying to have certain thoughts or trying not to have other sort of kinds of thoughts just doesn't work. If you tell mm. people not to think about a white bear, they think about white bears <laughs> without... Being able to stop, you know. Um, I'm thinking about a white bear now. And the more you say don't do it, the more they do it. Yeah. And so that's that's one thing, I suppose, is recognising that trying to pursue it like you would any other goal in life just doesn't work. It's counterproductive. Mm. The other part of, in, in our research we focused on is, is how this is perhaps then translated into our experience of our social worlds and some of that social pressure or that social expectation we might experience. So certainly we found that, for example, is research where we, we had students experience failure. We had them experience failure in a room where we put a whole lot of paraphernalia, books and posters about happiness. And the research assistant communicated, you know, the importance of happiness from our own perspective to the participant. And then they failed. They ruminated more on that failure and they felt worse about yeah. it in that room compared to a room that which was just neutral and didn't have any of that kind of happiness, the value of happiness reinforcing material in there. Mm. So again, that's sort of there's that ironic effect again, and, and it comes through in, in both our personal approach to it in our own minds, but also our social worlds and how that's reinforced around us. If toxic positivity is damaging at the best of times, when we're just passively receiving it from our environment, it can be devastating when we're facing serious hardships. Take Jamie. Five years ago, she received some of the worst news of her life. So in 2017, I was pregnant with my second child. I was having a baby boy. At about seven, nearly eight months pregnant, my baby died. Um, so it's just one of those things. We just, I didn't feel him moving. I went into the hospital and I was told that he wasn't alive anymore. 
So it's kind of a devastating loss, really, for our entire family. Um, but the fallout of that was that just my entire world sort of collapsed and my relationships with family and friends changed, you know, some closer and some a lot further apart. And toxic positivity definitely came into it. I think some people really want to fix something that's so terrible for you and, and their way of fixing it is to just make you really want you to get behind the belief that it didn't happen kind of thing or that, you know, everything happens for a reason or, you know, at least you have a living child, at least you have this positive thing in your life to hold on to said so just they really want to sweep it under the rug. How do those statements make you feel? It was definitely invalidating and it, it caused me to shut down more. So you you learn who's okay to talk to and who's not okay to talk to. And sometimes, you know, the snowball impact of that, if so many people are reflecting back to you these kinds of statements, you just learn it's not safe to express those feelings. Mm. It's not okay to talk about how you're feeling sad. So you just, you don't choose to share anymore. So that creates a level of guilt and shame about how you're feeling, which is, it's devastating. Did you lose relationships over this period? Uh, yeah, definitely. I definitely lost some relationships with some family members. That's still not fixed. And I mean, 2017, that's five years ago. Hmm. Has anyone from that time come back to you and said, you know, I'm sorry for how I dealt with that. I don't think I was very helpful. Has anyone realised what they did? No, no, it hasn't really happened mm. at all. There's one incident that sticks in Jamie's mind most of all from that time. It happened on her first trip outside of the house after losing her baby. I think I avoided going out places and I'd got out of the house this one day and I had my older child with me, my daughter, who, you know, was a toddler at that stage and we'd made it into the shop and I ran into this person who's we'll just call them an acquaintance I guess but someone close enough to know the entire story and they sort of their response to me was not even to speak about what happened but to actually say oh you're so lucky to have you know just one child you should keep it that way oh my goodness it's so good when you have just one child I mean you should keep it that way and just focus on what you've got so, yeah wow. I guess that was the most devastating impact on me that interaction really because I guess maybe it opened my awareness to just that there were people that wouldn't even accept that my child had existed mm. because it was too uncomfortable for them gosh I'm so sorry um and that's but you know that was devastating at that point because it was so fresh for me with time you get used to interactions like that so how did you respond at the time I just continued through the conversation uh you know I guess I kind of smiled and nodded because I couldn't think of a way to respond to someone saying something of that nature to me mm. and I just made my excuses and got away from there and then I went somewhere else in Kmart and I had a meltdown pretty much you know I called my mom and and told her all about what had happened and she couldn't believe it and yeah that's yeah, that was the impact. I mean, do you think they were genuinely thinking they were being 
helpful when they were saying those statements or they just didn't know what to say and blurted out whatever came? Like, what do you think um, the motivation think, was? Oh, I definitely think like, you know, I've blundered into it myself when you faced with something that you don't know how to respond to. You just say anything. You just think, oh, I've got to say something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of the time it was their own uncomfortable feeling that made them just want to fix it, just make it kind of plaster it over so it goes away. And it's not from any negative place really, but I feel that maybe in their own life, maybe they're trying to get away from those feelings in themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it seems obvious to say that human emotions are complex and varied. So why do we feel tempted to dampen that negative aspect of ourselves sometimes, our negative emotions, when, yeah, our lives are never one thing or the other. Why, why would we even want to clamp down on that part of ourselves? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, it's the negative emotions which are most valuable. They're the ones which got us here in the first place, saved us from danger, hmm. stopped us from getting eaten by lions many, <laughs> many hundreds of years ago. You know, it's the fact we've all survived because we've got these big amygdalas which respond to threat and loss and other sorts of problems that we need to be alerted to. So these are really important emotions. They're actually much more valuable. Our happy emotions just tell us that things are going well. And of course, for our health, it's good to be able to have things going well more often than not. But the the negative ones are the ones which really have information attached to them. They're the ones that really tell us something about what we need to pay attention to. But yeah, somewhere along the way, we decided that they weren't valuable. This is where it all sort of started, is the value overlay. I mean, even even the idea that we have positive and negative emotions isn't really correct. We have pleasant and unpleasant emotions. Mm. And, and positive and negative places a value label on those, in a sense, which makes the negative ones feel somewhat problematic. So I think we need to be be cautious of that. And I think that being aware of that value label that we put on these is, is really important. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, toxic positivity and how it can rob us of healthy emotional expression. Jessica Mead is a well-being researcher at Swansea University, and she is very familiar with all of this. Her brother passed away when she was just a teenager. But the worst toxic positivity she experienced didn't come from others. It came from within herself. I was 15, so you can imagine as a teenager, you're already learning how to deal with emotions. And I was a really optimistic person. My mum's an optimist. My, my family, they're just optimistic people. And this is where the you can test yourself to see if you're an unhealthy versus a healthy optimist. Because you don't really know until you're put in that situation of, of trauma or suffering. And when I lost my brother, I... I, I laugh about it now because it's just ridiculous. But if anyone's listening and they're doing this, please stop because it's just not healthy. I was trying to convince myself that it could be worse. You always have those people who say, oh, well, it could always be worse. And, you know, you might be true, but it's not helpful in those situations. And I used to say to myself, well, at least I had a brother to begin with, because some people don't have a sibling. And At least I had that experience because it's a wonderful experience to have a sibling and grow up with someone. And I should be grateful that I even had that. It's daft. I know that's not going to make the situation better. But that was my approach back then. Another approach I used to use, which was very toxic, was to go, well, he may have passed away, 
he was um, a Marine in the forces. So it could have been any one of these men. And all these other men had wives or they had children. And I used to convince myself that, well, do you know what? It, it could have been one of them. And arguably for that family, that could have been worse. Why I thought this was a good method, I don't know. <laughs> but eventually this started resulting in PTSD because the approach of toxic positivity is to avoid all these negative emotions because we're told that we should be happy. Happiness is good for you. And it is. It's very good for you. But when you're put in a point of suffering, what's good for you is to experience that suffering. And I don't want everyone to, I don't want people to go downhill. And it's, it's a bit different when you've got mental health conditions like depression, because you do need strategies with dealing with that. I'm not saying that we should be leaning into those mental health conditions and facilitating them. But a normal life experience is suffering and it, it is death and grief. And we do need to accept that as part of our lives and build it into our experience somehow. But I feel like we don't talk about grief that much. It is definitely a taboo subject. And so a lot of these things where people try to look on the bright side of life is because that's what we think we should be doing. But if we make space in this bright side of life, we can be optimistic whilst accounting for grief and sadness and the fact that sometimes life just sucks. We're allowed to do that and still be optimistic if we be tragically optimistic. And through that way, we can start growing from tragic experience and experience post-traumatic growth. Tragically optimistic. What does that mean? Well, tragic optimism has been proposed as an antidote to toxic positivity, but it's a concept that was first coined back in the 1940s by Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor. Who spent three years in the concentration camps in Germany. And he wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning, it was called. And he coined tragic optimism through his experience. And he didn't know whether he was going to survive that. So there was no outlook of well, everything will be okay in the future. Everything's going to be fine. That's absolutely dandy. Because that didn't you didn't know if that was going to happen. So instead of focusing blindly on positive things will happen, he coined tragic optimism in that optimism in the face and recognition of tragedy. So instead of searching for something positive, he searched for meaning. And that's the underpinning of tragic optimism. You can embrace tragic optimism by making a daily effort to feel comfortable with feelings that are uncomfortable. Instead of what toxic positivity might um, lend towards, where you would ignore these feelings and just focus on building positive feelings. Jessica's own research has found some evidence that tragic optimism can help us cope in the face of life's challenges. In March 2020, as much of the world headed into lockdown, she wanted to see whether this mindset could predict how well someone's mental health would fare in the following weeks. So she recruited almost 150 people and first measured how highly they scored across a number of factors, including their levels of gratitude, physical activity, and tragic optimism. She then followed them for six weeks. 
Jessica found that someone's level of tragic optimism was one of the biggest predictors of better well-being. We found that we were able to predict up to 50% of somebody's well-being scores and the variance in that. Gratitude and tragic optimism were the only ones that significantly contributed to that. That's not to say that the other measures there are doing nothing at all and we shouldn't focus on them. The other measures being physical activity, connection to nature and social support. But that being said, I did replicate the study and nature connection and social support did come out as significant predictors the second time, along with tragic optimism and gratitude. Do you have any sense of whether the pandemic has had an impact on whether people are more inclined to engage in toxic positivity or the reverse, you know, be more authentic? I think it's probably led to a bit more authenticity. I mean, I don't know. I I think in the last sort of months I've, you know, I've been able to probably say myself that I'm absolutely over it. And, you know, everyone else will jump in and say, I'm totally over it too. I just need a holiday. You know, and, and so we've had that shared experience of adversity and difficulty and we've been able to talk about it and we know that it hasn't been pleasant for everybody. And I, and I think anybody, in fact, <laughs> probably anybody who told you that they had an absolutely fantastic couple of years is not not, not anyone's best friend at the moment. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> Indeed. I think it has been this shared experience of difficulty which we've been able to be a little more honest about with each other. We know we've all been through it. Putting together this episode, I spoke to a number of people with experiences of toxic positivity. There was one man in his 30s who said he'd only learned of the term from our Facebook post, where we'd issued a call-out for stories for this episode. It made him realise his habit of trying to help his wife feel better by pointing out the bright side of any problem she was facing wasn't exactly helping. Others wrote about staying in relationships too long because of toxic positivity. They would tell themselves things would get better or that they weren't that bad. A few also spoke about infertility or miscarriages, like Jamie from earlier in the show, and the fact that that had been met with plenty of toxic positivity. Then there were several people caring for someone with an illness or living with an illness themselves. One story that stuck with me is Kira's. She's 37, she's a psychologist, and she has metastatic breast cancer. Which is a terminal illness. The cancer had already spread across her body by the time it was diagnosed three years ago. So it's in my bones, my liver, my lungs. Despite the reality of her situation, she's had all kinds of unhelpful, meaningless things said to her. Oh gosh, I've had so many experiences of toxic positivity. I think... The, the very worst ones are when people say things like, oh, it's all in your attitude, you just, you have to have hope, which I find extremely condescending. You know, but this is from people who, who have just no idea about what it's like to be in my body. And they're telling me that if I'm just positive enough, that cancer won't kill me? Really? You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely pathetic. Um, I've got a really positive attitude to life in general, because that's a good thing to have, but it's not going to save my life. The other comment that really gets her is being told she has to be a fighter. And I think that's something that happens quite often in toxic positivity world is this idea that when we experience health problems that we're at war. 
Mm, yeah. And the idea is that you must fight. And if you end up dead, it's not because you had a terminal illness. It's because you just didn't fight hard enough. And that's completely one of the things that I find the most offensive. And I've told a few people that if they call me a loser at my own funeral, <laughs> that I'll probably come back and haunt them, to be honest. <laughs> Good response. <laughs> You know, when I eventually and inevitably die, as we all do, it's not because I've I've lost. It's just that that's what happens with cancer when it's, you know, metastatic like mine is. What do you wish people would say in these situations? You know, for people who are listening and wondering, okay, you know, I might have engaged in toxic positivity because I was scared and didn't know what to say when a friend was ill or, or whatever else. What should people say? What would you want to hear? Well, one of the, the the best and most comforting, funnily enough, responses was from a close friend of mine who, when I told her via text, their response was just a long stream of swear words. <laughs> and the reason why that felt like a good response was that it, it was an acknowledgement that what I was experiencing was really awful. Hmm. And I think that's the most important thing is just acknowledging that actually sometimes there's mm-hmm. no silver lining. Yeah. Sometimes it's not for a reason. Sometimes things are just awful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to be able to acknowledge that and sit with it. Look, I, I think the best thing to say if you really don't know what to say to someone is just to say, I don't know what to say (laughs) because that person, they're carrying it around with them all the time. They will know what what it is that you don't know what to say about and they'll understand because we're not born knowing what to say to people in these kinds of situations. And if you're honest, I feel that's the best policy. So I, I would like to encourage them not to, don't treat others the way you wish to be treated because some people do cope using denial um, and will give themselves the messages of toxic positivity too. I think it's really important to treat other people the way they want to be treated and to really pay attention to that. I mean, firstly, recognise that being, you know, being happy is is a, it's a fluid thing. I mean, some days we're going to be happy, some days we won't. And in fact, it's those days we don't which help us to really appreciate the days we do. That's a really important thing to remember because often we forget that. You know, it's very hard to appreciate happiness if it's just a constant. That's all in the mind for this week. Thank you to Professor Brock Bastian from the University of Melbourne and Jessica Mead from Swansea University, as well as everyone who shared their story with us, including Anna, Jamie and Kira Rickards. Thank you all. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer this week was Tim Jenkins. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.